Hey, listeners, welcome to episode five, where we discuss linguistic code switching, natural black hair, and how to get into good trouble. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Have you heard the term code switching before? I hadn't until I recently participated in a Zoom panel discussion on anti-racism. My contact, Cleone, who you met in the last podcast, was a speaker on the panel, and I had tuned in to listen as part of my learning journey. Camilla Avant, the director of diversity programs for Color Magazine, was also a guest on that panel. In the midst of the discussion, she used the term code switching. I hadn't heard the term before, so I wrote it in my notebook, circled it, and put a question mark beside it so that I remembered to look it up when the event was over. Here's what I discovered. The definition of code switching, per dictionary.com, means the modifying of one's behavior, appearance, etc. to adapt to different sociocultural norms. Code switching is a part of everyday life for most people, between interacting with friends, family, and strangers. Your demeanor and your language can change to match the different situations that you're in. In business, examples of code switching can be when a woman who works at a predominantly male company feels like she has to change the way she talks or the jargon she uses to adapt and fit into the old boys club. A person of color may have a work voice which sounds completely different from their regular voice or they feel the need to change their hairstyle or clothing in order to fit into a company's culture. This made me think because in my book, This Shit Works, I have a line that states that you can 100% be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. But now I wondered, is this true for people of color? Harvard Business Review conducted a study on code switching, and their research clearly shows that minorities who code switch are likely to face a professional dilemma. That being, should they suppress their cultural identity for the sake of career success, or should they sacrifice potential career advancement for the sake of bringing their whole selves to work? In my research, I learned that we as a country and the lawmakers, organizations, and corporations within it have a long history of suppressing black cultural identity. In 1996, the Oakland, California School Board began recognizing the African-American vernacular English as a widely known language. You probably know that as Ebonics. This caused a nationwide uproar, with states passing laws to ban Ebonics and legislators in Oklahoma going so far as to declare a state of emergency on the basis that Ebonics was a threat to the health and safety of its citizens. Ebonics is a language that started out of slavery in the African diaspora. It shares the structure of dozens of other languages that are fully accepted, and yet Congress needed to hold a hearing to discuss Ebonics. Suppressing the language and sentence structure is just an example. Another debate about what is professional, presentable, and allowable is that of natural black hair. In 2017, a preparatory school in Florida asked a black teenage girl to change her natural hair because it violated the school's dress code. And in 2018, a middle school student in Louisiana 
was removed from her school because of her braided extensions. These codes, rules, guidelines are forcing many African Americans to choose between embracing their identities and their heritage or education and economic advancement. My guest today is Summer Martin. Summer is the host of the Unconventional Woman podcast. I'm going to be talking to Summer about her experience with linguistic code switching, natural black hair, and how she began to experience a shift in her mindset beginning in her 30s when she started moving away from code switching and stepping fully into her badass staying in good trouble self. I love that intro. Thank you so much. The kind, kind words. I'm excited to be here with you, Julie. We've never met in person, but we have had wonderful conversations and I'm so glad that we virtually met. Yes. I'm going to dive right in because we have so much to talk about. We're never going to cover it in one podcast. Let's do it. So (laughs) (laughs) the contemporary Black experience is one in which you continually code switch. African-Americans are historically adept at code switching. In terms of linguistic code switching, is that something that you are taught? How does that become something that people of color do so well? I I can't say that I was necessarily taught. However, it's interesting as I, I do a quick flashback in my head while answering your question. I grew up around a lot of types of people. Los Angeles, for the most part, was pretty diverse. And so I had the honor of going to school with a variety of backgrounds and ethnicities and groups of people. And so language wasn't really an issue during that phase of life, interestingly enough. It really didn't manifest until 18, going into the real world. Before that, I would hear you know, oh, you sound white. What the hell is that for the record? The the later years is when I started to be a little more conscientious of the way that I would speak in certain companies. Before that, I pretty much talked the same. I mean, even if it's using slang, it it wasn't overt to where I could obviously say, oh, Summer, when you're in a a relaxed social setting, you're talking like this. However, if you're maybe around your mom and, and her friends, there was another way of speaking. It was all kind of the same. But really, as an adult is when I keened in on how other people were pushing that narrative on me, rather than me thinking about it and trying to be something I'm not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I'm just surprised that it didn't manifest until you were an adult. Yeah. It, it interestingly enough, and again, even, and as we continue this conversation and, and getting deeper, a lot of the real world did not present itself until I was an adult. <laughs> so whether that's just luck or just being oblivious, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure. But yeah, it was later on in life. Was there a move? Did you move from one place to another? Absolutely. Okay. So once I got, finished high school, I took some time off. I didn't go automatically away to college. I knew I wanted to, but I did not go immediately. So I stayed, hung out, went to junior college, played around with that transition. And then finally, decided I wanted to transfer to a historically black college in Louisiana, as shout out to Southern University. (laughs) (laughs) And so here we go. We've got Big City Girl now in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And this is when 
life presented itself in all its true forms. So this is early 2000 and not that long ago, you would think a lot may have progressed at that point, but one of my first interactions of, I wanna keep saying welcome to the real world. I, I hate to just attribute it all to the South, mm -hmm. um, but I'll never forget meeting one of my first roommates who ended up being my roommate for most of my stay in college. She told me about how in high school, now mind you, she was class of 2000 from high school. She had a white and black prom queen and king at her school in Louisiana. It's, that smacks of segregation. Oh my God. So all of a sudden now my textbook is coming to life. Things that I've read about right. that happened in the 60s are now here in the present in live living color. And another thing, their cemeteries are segregated. There's a white cemetery and a black cemetery. And it, that opened my mind and world into, okay, you are officially navigating in this space as a black woman. And what does that mean? When you moved to Louisiana, having not really noticed that maybe you were code switching, did anybody ever say to you, well, you don't sound black? <laughs> I yes. <laughs> so that's where that starts. And and it's a combination of a lot of things, right? Because it's regional difference. My accent's not there. It's totally West Coast. And so you you get the Valley Girl mock. And it I, I pause and kind of reflect a little bit because it was a true coming of age time period for me. Another comment that I used to get that kind of speaks to the colorism within any group of people that have a variety of hue skin tones, you're going to have colorism. But I'll never forget, in addition to being that valley girl based on the way I talk, there was also your pretty black girl. And these are black people telling me that I'm dark skin. And so just having to face that you're pretty for a dark skin girl, pretty black. That was another nickname that I had. So it was a lot of processing. Well, why can't I just be pretty? Mm -hmm. Why can't I just be Summer who is from Cali and not this Valley girl that you're trying to make me? And I am being extra on purpose right now. <laughs> but it, it took a lot of digging inside myself to search for that self-confidence, to not try to change myself so much just to be accepted by my fellow schoolmates at this point, which were predominantly Black people. Ha-ha. Did they ever say to you, you sound white? Well, really, the, the connotation with Valley Girl is, is a white girl. Yeah. A lot of it was inferred. Sometimes I would get white girl. And then again, being summer, <laughs> because <laughs> there can't possibly be women of color named Summer. <laughs> And, um, and that's changed a lot more, more recently, but 20 years ago and, and definitely growing up, it was a, a shocker when I would appear. <laughs> you would have an appointment and you, people would assume you're a white. That sure. was fun. So, and, and you'll notice, and I'm just, forgive me, I'm going to go all over the map, listeners, in terms of points in my life. Uh, again, it's, it's still adulthood. But let's fast forward a little bit and I'm done with college and I decide I want to remain in the South, not Louisiana, but I decide to move to Dallas, Texas. And so this is when, oh, your summer presents itself. If I could, Julie, get a dollar hmm. for how many times 
so I, I moved to Dallas. I don't know anyone. I don't have a job lined up. I'm just a girl with ambition, ready to do my thing, right? And, and so I had applied for jobs. Had no problem on paper. I'm ambiguous. It's summer. And here's my stuff. All the internships, degree, everything's fine. I would have phone conversations, do phone interviews. Never had a problem with that. I would get past that. Sure enough, the next step is, well, come on in and, and let's chit chat in person. And I will say eight out of 10, literally the first thing that comes out of the interviewer's mouth. Oh, your summer. Inevitably. I mean, just, yes, I'm summer. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I, I didn't get the job for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I attributed a lot to who I am. Because um, even at that point, when you're talking about code switching, I made sure I was as professional as professional can be. I'm dressed the ultimate business attire, hair, and we'll get into that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Everything is presentable, right? I'm not giving you any obvious reasons to deny me. After all, you've seen my resume. We've had a great first conversation. So there really shouldn't be a whole lot of reasons why things shouldn't progress into my favor and, and me getting a job. But usually after the in-person, I didn't get the call back. Hmm. So because you did bring up hair and <laughs> when you and I were first introduced, I admitted I have a lot to learn and I'm still learning. I'm on my journey. I've, I've read a lot about black hair as a black identity and connection to black heritage. And because you brought up your hair, I'm assuming when you said I have the right hair, you meant something looked different Acceptable. about your hair. Acceptable. So can you share with us some experiences you've had with how corporate work environments have dictated how you expressed yourself or did not express yourself with your hair? And to be fair, <laughs> it, nothing's written explicitly, right? Everything is implied, assumed, based off what you see, don't see, what is acceptable and not. So I'm not going to say that corporate America just blatantly says you can't do X in, in, in regards to your hair, right? However, schools, now that's a different conversation because they are explicit about it. There's a few layers with hair. Number one, I had to just get comfortable in my own hair as a black woman. My hair is, is very, very thick. It's coarse. And when it's wet, it will spaz out. And because you see these images so often as a, in life, but definitely as a child, you start to develop a complex about your own hair. Mom, why doesn't my hair respond like this? Am I ugly because my hair is this way? And so I had to become comfortable. And I hesitate with that because it, it took until 30 to get to that point. But before I was putting relaxer in my hair, that way I can at least be in the pool and the hair would just minimally freak out. Um, <laughs> you know, are you wore braids to have protective hairstyles, wanting my hair as flat as possible and not thick, where in hindsight, women paid money to have volume in their hair all the time, but I wanted mine bone straight because I was ashamed of how thick it was. And, and so getting past that, I, I was just used to always going to get my hair done, keeping it flat, 
through high school and into college pretty much the same way. And then you get into the, the workforce. And I started playing around with extensions. But even with my extensions, I made sure the color wasn't too vibrant because I didn't want to be perceived as ghetto. Uh, it's just funny how hair color on certain people commands some type of perception. And I was very conscientious of that just to not create a lot of conversations around my hair. But inevitably, <laughs> the, it always presented itself because you will have coworkers who would have the audacity to want to touch it or you know want to talk about it and i see you jumping Julie. i won't lie i won't lie and i know i've watched the videos shit white girls say i know how disrespectful it is to touch somebody's hair and i gotta be honest i'm always so curious about the texture of black hair that I've never done it, but like, I know why people want to touch it because it's such a different texture, mm -hmm. but I would never touch somebody without their permission. <laughs> well, it's just an interesting question. Even if you are respectful enough to ask before you do it, it brings attention that I'm different Yeah. when I am just trying to be, okay? And so asking the question in itself highlights, hey, you're different. I'm intrigued by this. And, and you almost feel like you're an exhibit in a gallery, in a zoo. It, 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 it can be a little degrading. And then for those who just outright touch, and I've had a few of those, yeah, as I got a little more confident in terms of, you know what, if I want to have a curly texture hair or just playing around with different textures and adding those extensions, I, I started to do that. I started to play with color a little more. And of course, so I would leave literally on a Friday, <laughs> come back with, I used to call it magic hair because again, you're trying to make others feel comfortable about the conversation. And that is on, I leave on Friday and on Monday, I may come back looking like something totally different. So I used to prepare colleagues, Hey, I'm putting in my magic hair. I'm going to look different on, on Monday, just to minimize the shock, your need to touch all of that. That helped a little bit, but again, I'm leading with trying to make sure you're comfortable. Right. And so after a while, especially with the last company that I was with, because I'd been there seven and a half years, people just knew that summer she likes to change her hair, but it took a lot of basically trained behavior on my colleagues' part. And, and then just a point in my life where I just said, I don't give a damn anymore. I'm not going to walk on eggshells with my appearance just to make you comfortable and for me to fit in. Uh, but that took a long time and I'm bringing my braids back into my life because now more than ever, who cares? <laughs> well, there has been a lot of legislature around this or not. Le I shouldn't say legislature. I should say corporate identity rules. And when you mentioned braids, there was an airline that wouldn't allow one of its uh, flight attendants to have braids. And this is a timely conversation. In my research, I found that Instagram shows 21.8 million natural hair posts. And 
in saying that in 2020, relaxers will be the smallest segment of the market, where in the 1960s and 70s, relaxers were the largest segment of the hair market. Yes. Yes. You know, in the last recent decade, there's been a resurgence with Black women of just being comfortable with their hair in their natural state. Now, small caveat with me, I don't know how to do my own hair. Shout out to the women who can and have taken the time to learn how to maintain their own hair. More and more, you are seeing women who, like I said, are rocking the froze and just leaving their hair in its natural state. So yes, there has been, because it was a little bit of that in the 70s especially when coming off the cusp of civil rights, that whole I'm Black and I'm Proud movement happened. And definitely that's being reaffirmed now within our culture. So absolutely, yes, that that's happening more and more. And then and just when you were talking about legislation, there is a, a bill that was passed last year called the Crown Act. Now it's only in seven states, but it started off in California and it was to specifically uh, take care of discrimination based on race-based hairstyles, specifically braids, locks, twists, knots within schools and and workplace to minimize the the discrimination that was happening there. I hope more states adopt it. We'll see. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I have a note here from my research that said the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, and that created the EEOC. And so when the EEOC was founded, the federal government's primary concern was that Black people be granted equal access to public workspaces. It didn't foresee, this is a quote, it didn't foresee that Black hair would need equal access as well. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Um, well, I mean, at that point, again, you're, you need more barriers to entry. So let's create some. So now you're saying I can't do it off race and, and ethnicity. Well, let me find something that's a little more subtle, but pronounced at the same time. And maybe it's that, and, and let's try hair, which is so silly. Yeah. I didn't realize that hair was such a code switching mechanism and I always thought of it as a linguistic thing. I didn't think of it as an actual physical thing. And it is, it's a physical. It's from your, the, the way you dress, your hairstyle, the way you conduct yourself. There's so many cues that trigger others to perceive you in a different light and to have to control all these cues is insane. Not to mention frustrating and exhausting, but how can I be me if you won't accept me for who I am? And it's the simple things. So you and I have the shared history of working in male-dominated industries. And I, of course, have navigated that male-dominated industry as a white woman. Can you share your experiences navigating a male-dominated industry as a Black woman? So from the woman Lynn. Let's start there. I find it interesting that there's just this no holes bar mentality in the world of corporate sales. So as a woman, when you're coming into this heavily male dominated profession, there's that pressure to fit in or to try to minimize your femininity and womanhood by adopting the sports, or if you're naturally into it, more power to you. 
but you, you definitely cue in on, I want to make sure I can talk about sports and, and team mentality and just this other high testosterone subjects and, and conversation. So you've got that. You definitely have to have your emotions in check, but then you add the complexity of, oh, your race now comes into uh, the picture. And, and definitely in my space, I was one of few. You're talking about a Salesforce team that had less than 5% obvious minorities. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is brown skin, black skin minorities. And so now you're kind of a fish in a glass bowl and you represent for the entire group, of course, never for yourself. I'll never forget, most sales organizations will have a boot camp. And so going through my boot camp experience, memorable moment in time, because this guy who was running it just had a fixation on making it like a frat. It was a hell of a lot of unnecessary mental BS. But I'll never forget one day, he, he was making random comments. So just to paint the picture, it's me and another individual, black man, two of us out of 40. And he goes, well, someone in here has experience with discrimination. And it's not Summer and X, the black guy. So I'm just kind of, where the hell is this going to go? There was another woman, white woman, who had she was in an interracial relationship and wanted to illustrate that they know what discrimination is like. So I let him talk about their story and I slowly raised my hand. Yes, Summer. I said, well, actually, I'm engaged to a white man and he's white and he's a Republican. Number one, why the hell are we even having this conversation? But again, we always did. I'll never forget during the Ferguson protests, one of the managers came up to me and was like, are you going to go out there and loot with the protesters? Now, he was joking, but, you know, in those moments, looking back, I wish I would have been a little more assertive because you chuckle, you smile, you nod to get along to get past the moment, to not let it last. And as I say that, I don't, was it my responsibility to point you out and say, hey, asshole, I don't like that? I don't know. I'm, I'm, as I'm telling this story, it, it, a lot of emotions kind of flood because I had to bite my tongue or God love my husband now. I come home and just tell him stories after stories after stories. And, but, you know, you didn't, or even the fact that we used to have a Monday called Monkey Suit Monday. So we have to wear business attire on Monday, but specifically on Monday, we had to wear business suits. Now, where did monkey suit come from? I'm not sure. This was before me. It finally went away a couple of years ago because enough people complained HR. Well, I think that people grow up with a lexicon. They grow up with sayings and they don't even know what they mean and they don't know how derogatory they are or where that origin of that saying came from. And ignorance is not an answer. Getting back to your original point, whose job is it to tell that person that that right. is an inappropriate Correct. thing to say to someone? Like, 
at some point somebody has to tell them but whose job is it is it your job because you were the person he was saying it to and no one else was around or is it everybody's job in that company to say this is I don't know yeah it, it should and again it's another indicator when you don't have representation yeah and you've just been referring to this day for decades however long unchallenged because you don't either a I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt and say you don't know the ramifications of the term I'm gonna give you that but a part of me also considering the environment and because there's not enough brown people and black people in that environment to challenge it, I'm a carry on as we always do. Let me give you an experience that again, I grew up in a very white environment and because my mom was a single mom, I was predominantly raised by my grandmother. And my grandmother was depression era. Nothing will make her happy. No one will make her happy. She doesn't see the good in anybody. And I grew up around her language and her use of words. And I went off to college and my first week in college, I had a woman that I met and she was black. And I, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I said to her, I said, I don't know any colored people. And she corrected me right on the spot. She said, we don't say the word colored. And I was like, what do you say? And she was like, black. And that's the thing. She taught me in that moment, I would never use that word again. But if she hadn't, how long would I have gone on using that term? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying it's your responsibility in that space to correct him, but I'm so grateful she corrected me. Now, this is 1994, my freshman year in college. And I've never, until this moment, saying it out loud, I've never used that term ever again. I was completely educated in that moment. Sure. Well, and then, you know, you also have to think about the hierarchy. This was the person who ran that department. Yeah. So who the hell am I? I certainly wasn't comfortable enough to do that at that time. I can only speak for myself. In certain circumstances and situations, you do things just because you don't want to rock the boat. We have to get to the point where we talk about openly this caste system that we've created. Cast is a book that when I told you about my journey of learning, you said this is a book you need to read. So I'll put that book in the show notes. The book should be required reading for high schoolers. Juniors and seniors should not come into the real world not knowing history. You have to know what you are up against. It is not to say that things are impossible, but when you understand why you have to work a little harder, it's not just an urban myth that brown and black people say to their families, you know, you got to be 10 times better to to get the job. There's a reason, because there's an entire system that is in place to make a certain group of people succeed no matter what, and has been from the inception. And it's not to make it an excuse, but you can't play the game if you are not familiar with the rules and you don't know the circumstance. And we don't know the history because our freaking educational system has made this whitewashed, romanticized account of what happened. We, we can't heal fully until we learn from the history 
accept how fucked up it is and then try to make the change. Right. But the outright denial of it or let's not go there. You can't ignore it because its tentacles are all over 2020. When people ask that profound question of how did we get here? The writing has been not only on the wall, but in the constitution from day one. Right. So we just have to get comfortable with getting to know ourselves, America, America getting to know itself. And then we can get to healing. You can't shy away from it. Yes. The book's amazing. I'm so glad you told me to read it. I mean, yeah. I'm only a third of the way into it. And I same here. We are we're at the same spot just getting into it. But you know, it almost feels like someone's taking the the blinds or blinders off of you. It's all of a sudden just like, oh my God. And and not to necessarily get into the book because it, it just really shows how do we have a code switching? Why is that even a thing? And it's because we have been told what's right, white, and everybody else needs to get on board and accept it in your place in this caste system or try to assimilate as much as you can by shedding who you are and your identity to claim whiteness or get closer to whiteness. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's complex. You mentioned that your 30s ushered in this mindset shift. And you and I shared in a previous conversation that turning 40 was a real watershed for both of us. That was obviously a process for both of us, a decades-long process. Why do you think 40 for us was the moment that we fully came into ourselves? One thing's for sure is I want to dismantle the benchmark for ages. You think by 30, life looks one way. You hit 30, it's not. You come into your 30s and you're like, all right, 40, it'll be this way. And a lot of that is just a false narrative that society has imposed upon all of us. All of our journeys are different. Our circumstances are different. And because you weren't a millionaire by the time you're 23, because we have a lot of that. We've edify and romanticize the younger you can do it the better and if you haven't done it something's wrong with you and life is over after 40 and so forth and so forth so in my 20s I felt the need to please everybody from parents doing what I said I was going to do I got into college and did the right thing I'm going to take steps forward that would make you proud that you would want me to do and then going into an external factor with society tells me I should be in my 20s. I wanted to live up to that. You get past that, hit 30. And for me, because there was just so many complexities from my skin, loving my skin, loving my hair, believing that I'm truly beautiful, that takes a lot of work because you've spent almost your entire life seeing images of others that don't look like you being glorified and told they're beautiful and you're not, that's a lot to unpack and, and undo. And finally, as I turned 30 and meeting my life partner, things just clicked and I got a little more comfortable. And then 30, it was more of, I know what I want, 
I'm just going to keep trying to get it right. Damn it. I'm just going to keep trying to do it. And then towards the end of thirties, it was more of, I don't, I don't want to play this corporate game anymore. This is a game that I just don't want to play. And I, I realized the ultimate satisfaction and gratification for me was be my own boss. I'm still on that quest and on that journey, but I just realized I don't do well playing under other people's rules. Late thirties is when that really started yeah. to manifest. Same for me. Late thirties was when I was like, I'm not doing this for anybody else. Fuck your rules. I obviously have never been, had prejudice against the color of my skin. It was more the way I said things, my tone, my ideas were all great. It was the way they came out of my mouth. And mm. I was too much for a lot of people. Exactly. And, and so when I turned 40 in September of last year, 2019, every year, especially around this time, as we ease into September, I'm doing a complete overview of what I've done in the last year. Have I moved the needle? What type of milestones and benchmarks and yada, yada, it, it's just my own little inventory that I like to do. But as that particular birthday, this milestone birthday was approaching, I just knew I wanted more. Professionally, this is not it. I can't be in this environment anymore. It's harmful. And I didn't necessarily have a plan. It was just a desire to rewrite the chapter at 40. Life's too short. And life is also about reinventing yourself. And I would say if there are listeners who are, especially women who are younger than us, again, don't get fixated on the age. So, but then again, we couldn't help it because that is, those are the pressures when you have these stupid ass lists, top 30, under 30 and under 40. And again, there's this pressure where we, especially women, because for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, but I, I really want to shatter that number one, there's only a few of us that can do all the things, right? No, all of us, there's so much room at the top. I look forward to getting up there, you know, and bringing as many people as I can with me. Yeah. A woman that I interviewed last week, Pearl, she, she has an organization that called Toast, which is for Black women to obtain anything, start thinking. And one mm. of their main principles is you lift while you climb. Yes. And that's so against what a lot of the language we hear about women that we are competing against each other for such a small slice of the pie. There's enough pie for everybody. There's enough really? pie for everybody if we help everybody get to the top. Exactly. There is. And it's also sweeter to celebrate together. Yeah. But you have to uncondition yourself. There's so much unlearning and just bullshit that was poured into me and what I believed in. And once the blinders are off and you open your eyes to your optimum possibility, sky is the limit, you know? And even when we're talking about bringing you back home, the code switching, the biases and the prejudice that, that are there, no doubt, and meant to hinder certain groups of people. In spite of that, even going back to the days of slavery, you know, I take comfort in all the incredible things my ancestors did in spite of. And so who am I to not live up to my potential now in spite of others trying to tell me what I can and cannot do, especially with my hair. 
You can kiss my ass on that. Ladies, rock your locks, your braids, your froze, whatever you want, because that has no bearing on whether or not I'm a good executive or whatever I want to be. Has no bearing. No, not at all. I'm going to ask you one thing because I love this terminology. What is one thing the listeners can do right now to take action to get into good trouble? Well, just learn. Research, really. Don't be afraid to learn. I consider myself an eternal learner. We should never stop learning. So the first things first, learn about your own backyard. Local elections are super, super, super important. I know it's sexy to talk about the presidential, but local, city council, school boards, judges, those are important. So if I say anything to get into good trouble, find out who the hell is running in your town, what they're about, and if you are not about their life, Next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's where I go. And if there's no one on that ballot, maybe you could run on the ballot. Heck yes. And just be kind, you guys. Let's be kind, wear a damn mask, and give people six feet space. <laughs> I, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for sharing your space with me. Oh, thank you. And uh, love and light to you. Wow, we got into a lot in that conversation. We discussed code switching, black hair, systematic racism, the media's idea of beauty and getting into good trouble. I know you come to this for networking and business development advice, and I hope that this conversation is one that helps us discover that we need to create business and networking environments in which people can strip away the layers upon layers of code switching techniques that they've had to employ, techniques that cover up their authentic selves and their heritage in the hopes of fitting in. Remember, it's not our differences that divide us. It's our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. This was a big conversation, one that I'm going to need to sit and reflect on for a while. When Summer and I talked a couple weeks ago in preparation for this podcast, she let me know that her favorite cocktail is the Paloma. And I was like, oh my God, that's one of my favorite cocktails too. Maybe it's because she lives in Texas that she loves tequila. I don't know why I love tequila. I live all the way up in Massachusetts and it's freezing half of the year, but it doesn't matter. We both love tequila and we both love Palomas. So yes, my drink this week is the Paloma, which is simply tequila, fresh grapefruit juice, fresh lime juice, agave nectar, and soda water. And a salt rim if that suits your fancy. It always suits mine. While I sip on this, I want to shine a light on the fact that the last two podcasts I've done have included conversations with black women whom I have never met before, who I have only talked to over Zoom meetings, women who have taken the time out of their busy lives to teach me, to help me grow, to help me understand, and to help me be better. Please don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask questions and have courageous conversations. Until next time, guys. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.